Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The rhetoric is hot. The action in markets is saying we don't buy it right now. The trade talk is way more powerful than the actual effects, at least according to traders. But are they taking things seriously enough? And joining us now to talk about that, Alberto Gallo, partner and portfolio manager of macro strategies at Algebris UK Limited, uh, coming to us from London. Uh, Alberto, we always love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. So, you know, we heard President Trump uh, say, we're going to go ahead with tariffs on our uh, our allies. The allies responding with absolute anger. Uh, markets totally shrugging it all off. Are they too sanguine? I believe that markets are a little bit complacent, especially uh, emerging markets. It's true that we had a very bad week last week, but generally speaking, um, we see an escalation in uh, trade conflicts and um, the, the policies that the Trump administration is implementing will bring growth back to the U.S. out of emerging markets. So what we're seeing actually in the credit space is a repricing of spreads across uh, some of the weakest emerging markets like Argentina and Turkey, but also some of the other ones like Brazil and Mexico. Uh, and we think that these um, these carry trades will continue to be under pressure. First, it was currencies. Now, even hard, uh, even local currency debt, and then hard currency debt are repricing. Um, and also, Europe will be under more pressure because Europe depends very much on uh, exports to emerging markets. Um, so, you know, it's a stronger dollar trend, even though we have some relief. Uh, today and it's a trend of divergence, not Goldilocks, so the opposite yeah. of what we had last year. Alberto, how much of what you're saying, which is weaker asset prices in the in the European Union as well as in emerging markets, how much of that hinges on escalating trade tensions, and how much do you think that just will happen based on where we are right now in the economic cycle? There's two things. One is that the trade tensions as you said, have a potential to become worse. Uh, and geopolitical risk also um, is relatively high in the Middle East. Um, so all these things can, can hinder global trade. The second fear that we have is that after a weak Q1, some economies may just not regain the momentum they've lost. So in the, in the Eurozone, for example, you've seen a pretty weak uh, Q1, the level of growth, the level of PMI are very good, but momentum is fading. And so what you should do if, if you are a policymaker uh, now is to do a fiscal stimulus to, um, to uh, push growth higher. And we know that some core European countries have a surplus, uh, like Germany, France, that they can spend. Uh, but there is lack of willingness to, to use this. Um, so for the moment, we are in a, in a, slowdown, um, in a, in a slowdown of momentum. Well, Alberto, Italy doesn't seem to have any reticence about spending money that they don't have. And I'm curious about whether you believe Italy's problems are over because they have a new uh, finance minister, Giovanni Tria. And I believe that in the past, he has actually uh, said that the uh, euro is, uh, is a rigged system in favor of Germany. 
Well, the Eurozone is favoring Germany. That is a fact. Uh, there's a McKinsey study which shows that Germany is gaining around 250 billion euros uh, in, in savings from being in the Eurozone by funding at negative yields and by having an exchange rate which is lower than, than a potential Deutschmark would be. So some of these benefits are not being redistributed. Uh, but it's also true that uh, you know, Germany cannot bear the weight of uh, saving all the periphery countries, and Italy hasn't done the reforms uh, it should have done. Uh, so you know, the truth is in the middle. Italy has been very much the, um, the, the target of all the migrant flows together with Spain and Greece from uh, North Africa. And so uh, it has been under a, a particular fiscal strain to um, uh, to host uh, all the all the migrants, uh, yeah. around almost a million people arrived in the last few years. So I would say the euro exit fear is a, has been a bit overdone. You know, Italy doesn't want to exit. Three out of four Italians want to stay in the European Union and in the eurozone. But maybe a little bit of slack on the fiscal side. Pro-growth measures are needed in the periphery, where you where you still have very high youth unemployment. Okay, so Alberto, uh, I want to put you on the spot. What would make you actually trade on some of the trade talk? In other words, you know, what what so far have we heard uh, with respect to rhetoric that has actually affected your investing theses and uh, and made you shift around your portfolio? Generally, I would say we have already shifted towards a less positive stance on some of the emerging market countries' debt, uh, which we were invested in last year. So we have reduced exposure to some of the riskiest countries in emerging markets. We have actually um, hedged or overhedged um, some of the weakest ones like Turkey or Argentina and uh, also Brazil and Mexico, which face elections this year. We're not looking for a crisis, but there is a potential for repricing because the Fed is hiking. So liquidity is going away from EM back to America, to dollar assets. So some of these um, carry trades that were so profitable aren't profitable anymore. And also, the, you know, the trade escalation could be um, a, a negative growth driver for countries uh, that export to the, to the U.S., for, for uh, you know, China and all the countries that rely on, on, uh, on China. Um, and all these things are, you know, if you look at valuations, they're not really priced in. Um, there's been a very good year last year for emerging markets, debt and equity. And, and you know, this year we had uh, a, small, a small correction, but, uh, you know, spreads in emerging market debt are still near record lows. Thanks very much. Alberto Gallo, Portfolio Manager, Head of Macro Strategies, Algebras Investments, joining us from London. The shares of Merck are higher by nearly 2% right now. This comes after the uh, results of a follow-up, two follow-up studies having to do with advanced melanoma showing that Merck's Keytruda drug demonstrated long-term survival benefits. Here to tell us more about this and other wonders of the scientific world uh, attending the American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference in Chicago is none other than our healthcare reporter for stocks, uh, Tatiana Dare, and she joins us now. And I recommend you follow Tatiana on Twitter at Tatiana Dare. That's D-A-R-I-E-E when it comes to being on Twitter. Tatiana, tell us about the, this meeting. Why is this, this clinical oncology conference so important to companies? 
Yes, uh, thanks so much for having me, Pim. So we have, it's important because we have really the biggest uh, and the most prominent uh, doctors in cancer in, in the fields of oncology attending this meeting to really stay on top of the, the research and innovation in this field. And uh, this year, it appears that Merck is a clear winner here because they just posted data in um, stage four lung cancer. These are really patients that have no other options. And the most important finding here is that their drug, Keytruda, was able to help patients live longer than those on chemotherapy. So this study really positions the company to um, allow patients to avoid chemotherapy altogether and just go on Keytruda. And the benefit there was from four to eight months. So that's a, a remarkable um, benefit, you know, for those patients who really don't have a lot of options. So uh, Merck, a winner, uh, one loser, Nectar Therapeutics, who just put out a story noting that it has lost a third of its value today after a study that it put out. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, exactly, Lisa. And the last time I checked, it was about a quarter, I think, that they or uh, they lost, or even more than that. It's uh, incredible the move. Investors are really punishing Nectar Therapeutics here, and that's because expectations were really high going into the conference. This is a company that presented very promising results of its drug in combination with Bristol um, Squibb's uh, Optivo. And uh, those results, the big question for investors here has been, will those promising results hold up in a bigger patient population. And unfortunately, we have seen uh, those response rates come down in melanoma and kidney cancer. Well, uh, the company uh, has been assuring investors that it's yet too early to tell and uh, rush to conclusions about the drug benefit because they've only presented uh, data on patients that have been on the treatment for just a couple of months. So they will have an update uh, later in the year. But, uh, you know, today it looks like uh, investors are uh, have been really disappointed so far. Tatiana, how do you describe to people this world of gene editing? Because that seems to be such a hot area when it comes to investments and also scientific advances. Yes, Pim. Um, uh, probably the best way to describe it right now, you know, is science fiction, because uh, this is really something just incredible to have um, uh, doctors uh, being able to, you know, uh, and scientists being able to edit your DNA information so uh, that it can provide a cure for some diseases that have genetic mutations and have uh, no other alternatives today. But uh, it's very early and, you know, we've seen and we've learned with CRISPR therapeutics, the FDA has put a hold on a trial that they haven't even started. And that's because there is still a lot of questions when it comes to doing this in people. We have data in animals. We know it works in agriculture with plants, with animals. We don't know yet if it works uh, in humans and if it's safe enough. Tell us about a company called Bluebird Bio. They're based in in Cambridge and, of course, uh, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. Tell us about Bluebird Bio. The shares are up about 3.5% today. Yes, Blue uh, was also subject to a pretty interesting debate here at the conference. They posted data showing that their drug delayed the progression of a melanoma um, in patients by almost about a year. And if you compare that to the current standard of care or the current treatments that patients are getting, they're only seeing a benefit of about four months. So, you know, that's an impressive benefit of almost double uh, the current uh, benefit that they're getting. Uh, but the question for investors also 
also uh, based on high expectations um, uh, on uh, primary results has been uh, if they can provide a larger benefit. And I think investors were looking for something closer to 15 months. But doctors, uh, you know, again, I guess they had those conversations over the weekend. They said this is a very solid result a year versus the the four months uh, we're currently seeing. Tatiana, I'm wondering just if you take a step back, whether there's been any discussion about uh, President Trump's talk of lowering drug prices, given the fact that these are uh, largely pharmaceutical companies. Not so much, Lisa. The, the, this conference is very, very focused on the latest innovation in, in oncology here. And uh, I guess that the, the talk uh, has in town has been on Keytruda and also on combination approaches because, um, unfortunately, we're seeing a great benefit in lung cancer patients. But there are lots of other cancers and lots of other patients who currently don't have many options. So doctors are trying to, um, to, to see what the, the latest innovation there is. Tatiana, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a fascinating conference, and we look forward to your reports out of it. Tatiana Darier, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg, reporting from the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Uh, Winners and losers emerging as these companies reveal tests and uh, studies that show whether or not their, their strategies are effective. The advertising industry has been rapidly changing, and one company in particular is trying to reflect that change in itself. Joining us now is John Seifert, uh, Seifert, excuse me, John Seifert, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Ogilvy. Uh, He is here in our 1130 studio. So tomorrow is a big day. You are uh, rebranding, but also refounding this agency. Tell us what's happening exactly. Well, tomorrow is really a milestone in the nearly 24, 30-month journey that we've been going through to transform the company. Uh, We're nearly 70 years old. We'll be 70 in this coming September since David Ogilvy founded the company in New York in 1948. We're probably going through the biggest business transformation in our company's history. We're pulling down all the silos, all the specialist divisions that have been built up over years and really trying to bring it all together and connect it as one company. Tomorrow is what we're calling our refounding, affectionately in David's honor. He started the company as one brand, and so tomorrow we're reintroducing the brand to our 15,000-plus employees, all in the context of giving them greater clarity on really the founding purpose of, of why Ogilvy exists, which we believe it's to make our clients' brands matter, in an incredibly chaotic fast-paced, changing world where technology and social media and so many other factors have changed the way brands are built today. Uh, John, uh, I remember the booklet that uh, David Ogilvy would offer to all new employees. It was called What We Believe and How We Behave. And he described Ogilvy as a teaching hospital. And I'm wondering if you can use your own experience of joining Ogilvy. Uh, you didn't even get out of college, I believe. You you were an intern, and Bill Phillips took you on, and you just wore people down to accept you. Tell people a little <laughs> bit of your story and how that kind of exemplifies 
this idea of what we believe and how we behave. Well, you're touching on exactly the motivation for why we want to do this refounding, because uh, I do believe in my personal story. It is a story of the brand. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a family friend who worked for David Ogilvy, and she, um, she was concerned that as a sort of C student at the University of Southern California who spent more time with his friends and, and at parties, I might need a little kick in the butt to, to get my act together. And so she appealed to then uh, president of Ogilvy and Mather in the U.S., Bill Phillips, to give me a summer job. So I showed up on the doorstep in June of 1979 with nothing more than a business card from Bill that said, uh, give this guy a summer job. And, uh, and, and that's what happened. So I am a product of the system of a commitment to teach someone who knew almost nothing about uh, either advertising or business or marketing uh, to help help bring out my kind of, I guess, natural inclination to work hard and, and, and learn from a, an amazing group of people. So the message is staying the same. The backdrop, though, has changed dramatically. And the past few years have been uh, somewhat difficult for the advertising business and for Ogilvy. Um, and I want you to talk a little bit about why. Well, one of the things that give us such conviction about the changes we're making and, and the motivation to, to refound the brand, so to speak, is that we are seeing unprecedented change within our client organizations. They themselves and their industries are in a complete state of disruption. Whether that is through new business models, new brands that have come onto the scene with none of the legacy challenges of, of their cost structure, their innovation pipeline, their access to capital, and are really innovating in a much more dynamic, much faster way to the needs and interests of the, con the end consumer than we've ever seen, certainly that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And with that disruption has come a lot of pressure on these businesses to get their own cost structures in line, simplify and, and get the complexity of the, out of their own business systems, and then think about brand building in a modern way, which is how do you connect everything from your promise, your values, the point of view you have in the marketplace, to the things that matter in terms of how do I buy your products and services by my mobile phone? Or how do I you know, enjoy a, a, an experience that transforms the way I think about your value to me in my life? So every client we, we have right now is going through this kind of set of changes. What's the biggest change in skills that employees at Ogilvy need to have in order to be successful today? We are training them in the spirit of teaching hospital to think holistically. We absolutely need specialist skills, be it in understanding the coding that goes behind the technology that serves a consumer through a mobile device or, or, or through, uh, through some other form of, of uh, digital experience. But we also need people to see the whole brand, to understand that the trust that's built through employees and their belief in what they're selling and how they serve and what they promise to customers can be fulfilled by the institution of the clients themselves. And so we think of almost every audience, regulators, employees, end consumers, the partners that many of our clients are now doing business with. All of these audiences are vital. For those companies and brands that don't have a holistic view of it and can see how to connect the dots, we think those companies are going to suffer to either new brands or brands that transform faster. And to us, that's the future of, of where this is, is all going from a brand and business perspective. Are there some things that don't change? For example, uh, I remember reading something about how you got promoted early on in your career, and it was about a breakfast buffet. 
And I'm wondering if you could just quickly tell that story and about how it doesn't matter what you do, but everything you do has to be exceptional to the point of trying to make that connection with the client. No, exactly. I mean, I um, <laughs> it was it still befuddles me to some extent, but I used to work on the Mattel toys business. We used to make hundreds of toy commercials every year, primarily for showing at what was called the the uh, the toy fair uh, to see which of the major retailers would accept a new toy. And uh, we used to screen these rough cut commercials of these different toy commercials at seven in the morning in Los Angeles because it was the only way the clients could come see the, the, the films, give you comments, and then get back to their offices uh, through the horrendous L.A. traffic. And so one morning, uh, normally we would just put out some simple, you know, bagels and orange juice and things. And I thought to myself, you know, this is kind of boring. Let's try and spice this up. So I went and bought fresh orange juice for everybody. I got this amazing array of, of uh, Danish and, and uh, fruit and, and everything. And the meeting went so well, I, I think probably because the, some of this stuff put people in a better mood than they came in that my supervisor came to me a week later and said, you know, the way you handled yourself in that meeting was phenomenal. I didn't do anything but bring the catering in. We think your account supervisor, or senior account executive material, uh, congratulations. So, but it, it was really just, to your point, it was a, a foundation of go the extra, make the extra effort and, and, and create a client experience that you know, people remember. Yeah, and uh, make sure that people... Uh Eat well. Yeah, I was breakfast. just going to say, that's, that I've learned throughout my career. Pe feed people well, good things happen. Thanks very much. John Seifert is the chairman and the chief executive of Ogilvy. Uh, they are a division of WPP, and uh, congratulations and best wishes on your refounding. Uh, this is uh, going to be an exceptional time in the world of advertising. In a world of mass production, one company remains committed to handmade items, specifically handmade beds and linens. And joining us now is Jan Ride. He is the executive chairman of Hostens, and they are based in Sweden. And it's a pleasure to have him here in our 1130 studio. Jan, thank you very much for being here. Give people just a little, a brief history of this is a fifth generation family owned business. And you start, the business started by making saddles and now it makes mattresses as well as other items to help you sleep better. Yes. Uh, my grandfather's grandfather, uh, was a master saddler and he founded the company 22nd of March 1852. So we are on a mission to serve people, to make uh, people's lives better. And the focus have been on beds since the start and only on beds and, and accessories uh, 100% since 1917. So uh, I was reading through your catalog and, and the mattresses can go from $4,000 up to more than $100,000, depending on whether you customize them. They are a luxury product uh, made from natural ingredients and handcrafted. I'm trying to understand how the business has changed for you, because when I travel on the subway in New York City, I see a lot of advertisements for, for Casper's or, uh, you know, name your mattress shop. It seems like it has gotten more competitive and more crowded with companies that don't have the same kind of overhead? Uh, well, uh, it's a lot of crap out there in, in, in the jungle. 
the, the key is that the consumer are intelligent and they recognize they have a lack of sleep, they are sleep deprivated and so on. So they are looking for, for something that will change that. And uh, what other product would uh, be better for your health? What other product would be, be better for your beauty and sleeping really, really good in a husband's bed? Have you seen business expand substantially over the past few years? Yes, we are growing rapidly. We've been growing rapidly for almost 30 years. And right now we are growing with 55% in the United States. Over what and, time frame? Uh, this year compared to last year. 50, 55% growth. We are, we are aiming for more than 100% growth. And we do that in... 10 of our top markets. Right how much now. How much does this sort of hinge on the population of wealthy individuals and how that's increased? Um, I don't know. Of course, uh, they need to sleep, uh, but everyone needs to sleep. So we are on a mission to uh, reach uh, any consumer that from $4,000 and upwards, uh, anyone that prioritized to live better, to have a better life, be happier, uh, and uh, look younger and sleep better. Uh, uh, they are, we are here for them. Tell us about your plans in spe- specifically in India, because I was noting that you have uh, you've got a franchise model there, and you yeah. have really uh, tried to uh, expand the business. And uh, maybe just give us a, a little bit of look about to why you, you you selected India. Well, we are working with thirty seven countries right now. India is one of them. Uh, it's uh, maybe a coincidence that you picked India, but we have a growth rate. I saw the, the morning's figures. We have a growth rate compared to last year. We have plus uh, 2,000% in India. So we are working with local partners. Uh, that is people that have discovered our product. They sleep in our product themselves. Uh, and uh, they feel that our mission to make this world a better place and, and help people, serve people to sleep better is, is uh, amazing thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people talk about the input costs, you know, the commodity prices have been increasing. And I'm wondering from your perspective, have you seen uh, that it is getting more expensive, not only to source the materials, but also to pay people to actually do the labor? Well, uh, of course, labor costs, uh, but but we are located in Sweden, so we have the usual increase, uh, of, and we have very qualified labor. But uh, I love him. It's like people live well in Sweden, not unlike you in the U.S. <laughs> this isn't an issue in Sweden. I know. Yeah, Go so, on. So, okay. So, so Sweden so isn't that aside. Sweden isn't a low cost country to produce, but we do that because we want to have the highest quality. Well, what about the commodity prices? Well. We source the highest and best quality materials, uh, and of course the prices go up, but they're following index. It's it's nothing special. Uh, also, just to mention, because it may not be uh, evident, but your uh, beds can be found in hotels as well as in cruise ships. Uh, that's another market. It's not just the, the stationary market. Uh, is, is that something that you're also pursuing? Uh, we are not prioritized that. We have started very recently working with, with the hospitality. Uh, so it have only been individuals that have been sleeping on our beds. And when they have started sleeping in Hastings, they want it in their yacht. They want it in their airplane. Uh, so we supply airplanes and, and we can customize whatever you want. 
Jan Ride. Thank you so much for being with us. Jan Ride, Executive Chairman of Hostins, talking about the importance of sleep and Pim. He doesn't need to convince me. Does he need to convince you? <laughs> you want uh, to go to sleep? Not at all, but I, I, I just spend more time getting up earlier now. I do. Oh. Yes. All right. As I get older. Well, you know, in fairness, my bed often uh, gets shared. It's certainly early morning by the little pitter-patter that comes tromping in and exploits my... Yeah, they they, they disturb my sleep plenty. Exactly. Um, Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.